0: What would be your first verse for missions? I mean, of course, a lot of verses we probably right away think of Isaiah's call. Here, my send me who will go for us here, my send me. But what's the first verse where you really get a sense of missions? Well, I I think you can go all the way back to Genesis and you've got in your notes. I think you've got a list of verses and this is one we'll look at. Real, We won't look at all of these, but we'll refer to them throughout. So this is where missions begins Genesis 27 and 28, verse 31. This is the creation. And in, and in the end of chapter 1, on the sixth day, God creates man and woman. <clears throat> so it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything, living thing that moves in the earth. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So uh, when you look at chapter 1, you, you and, and uh, Pastor Jeff and I were talking about this just a second ago, you see right away the, the words form and fill on the days of creation. And what's God doing in creation? Uh, he's, uh, Moses is giving us almost a poetic description <laughs> of what's going on there. He's, he's, first of all, he's forming like an artist. He's forming, and that's what he does the first three days. And then corresponding to the forming, he then fills what he's formed on each uh, day Day one, day four, day f- two, day five, day three, day six. He's f- forming and filling. Are you following me with that? Okay, so the contents of what he's filling are on the second three days, the, f- the form, the structure, is the first three days. So he's forming and filling. <coughs> and we see that here. And then we also see that he's making man in his image. And we know that, we understand that. Uh, what's really going on there? God is king. God is king. Uh, by the way, what does he look like? Does anybody have a description of God? What does he look like? What color of hair? How tall? Wait a minute. <laughs> you say, That's heresy. Uh, God doesn't have a body. The second member of the Trinity took on a body. He incarnated, but God is spirit. Okay. So what's he doing there? The invisible God makes visible man to do what? To reflect who he is and what he's like. He's the king, and he makes man in his own image so that he will do what? with the world around him. What's he what's he doing here? To do what? To, well, first of all, to multiply. All right? We need more of you. What's he, what, what's his goal? Uh, he puts them in the garden. What do they do? They cultivate, right? They work the garden, right? See, oh, it was a beautiful garden. They just sat around sipping tea. They didn't have to do anything. No, he put them there to continue the work that he'd begun. And I get the sense there that they're expanding that garden. That's what's in play here. And I, I suppose, you know, a little imagination here, but if, if they have not sinned, I think the goal would have been what? To take that garden and expand it until the whole world is what? One glorious garden reflecting the Creator. Uh, by the way, that's how it does end up eventually, isn't it? We uh, we start with a garden and we end up with a garden city. <laughs> Coming out of heaven. <laughs> And uh, I won't get it. We, we, we got to stay on track here. We're going to get lost here. But <clears throat> the point is, he tasked man to fill the earth and rule over it as God's co-rulers. And then he made a statement. It was very good. What was God doing there? He was blessing his creation. Okay? And God's mission, if we can hop over to Isaiah 6-4 that fills this out, his, his mission is to... Fill the whole earth with what? Remember that? Remember Isaiah's vision? He uh, he's, uh, suddenly beholds God in the temple. And God is what? He's high and lifted up. Smoke is filling the temple. It's a scary vision. It's an intimidating vision. Here he is in the presence of the holy God. And even the angels are doing what? These, these beings, these cherubim, what are they doing? They're flying and they're, they have to cover What? They, with their wings, they cover their face and they cover their feet. And what are they reciting over and over and over? Holy, you can say it with me, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of His glory. That is God's mission, statement. That is what God is, is up to. And so we see that here in, in creation. And then what happens? God blesses creation. He uh, the first blessed man, you could even argue the blessed man of of, of 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 Psalm one should have been Adam. It was intended to be Adam until what happened? Chapter two or three, rather. What does Adam do? Adam and Eve sin, they fall. They are now under the curse, okay. But in the very moment that God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent who instigated, this uprising against God and His order. What do we hear? The first promise, the very first mention of the gospel. He, God, from the seed of the woman, is going to come a what? A head crusher, <laughs> a snake crusher. Uh, he's going to his heel is going to crush the head of the serpent, and in the process, he himself, his uh, his heel, will be bitten. Of course, we know that to be. A prophecy eventually that's fulfilled in Christ's cross work. So that's the proto-evangelium. Uh, we, there's a curse and yes there's a promise of the serpent's destruction and the blessing restored through the seed of the woman. <clears throat> and that's the beginning of the unfolding of this story. God makes a promise. He's going to take back that which Satan and sin has ruined and he's going to rescue and restore all things. Now that promise then extends to the patriarchs. We pick it up in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to (coughs) 3, and uh, we won't read all this, but this is God talking to Abraham after he's called him, and uh, he makes a promise, I'll make, verse 2, I'll make of you a great nation, I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, there's that theme again, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So right away, we're seeing as early as Genesis 12, God's mission heart to redeem the entire world, to bring the the world that's rebelled against him back into relationship with him. This is repeated several times in the Abrahamic narrative. It's repeated again to Isaac in Genesis 26.4. It's repeated again to Jacob in Genesis (coughs) 28.14. And then finally, uh, when we get out of Genesis and we begin in the Exodus, the seed of Jacob, the, the sons of Jacob, are constituted a nation. And what does God call this nation now after 400 years? And um, living in Egypt and now they're under a Pharaoh that doesn't know God and God says it's time for them to be redeemed out of bondage when he sends Moses to tell Pharaoh let my people go what does how does he refer to Israel what does he call Israel and yeah he says, he says let's see do I find that there Maybe I don't have it in this. So anyway, I'll come back to that. I think I missed. Where did I miss? Okay, Exodus 4, 22 22 and 23, which is not in your notes. He calls Israel his what? His son. So so in a sense, Adam was his son. He disobeyed. By the way, he's actually called God's son. Did you know that? In the chronology of Luke. So he is the son of God in the sense that we've just described earlier. He was there. He was created to be God's representative. But anyway, so Israel is called God's son, and uh, in Exodus chapter 14, verses 4, what does God do? He redeems Israel out of bondage, and of course we've got the plagues and all that God did in the Exodus to bring them out of bondage. To show what? To show Egypt and Israel and the rest of the world that God is the Lord. Okay? Then later on, What does he do after he leads them across the Red Sea? They're in the wilderness getting ready to go into Canaan. He gives them his law. And why did he give them his laws? Let's look at uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Hang with me. This will make sense in a second, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And he's talking about the law, the, the, the commandments that he's given them. And he says in verse 6, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? So he wanted to make... God's ways, His ways, visible to the surrounding nations through Israel. Are you with me? Are we, are we tracking here? All right. Let's move on. And by the way, let me, let me make a quote here. Christopher Ash makes this great point. He said, In the Old Covenant, there was a lovely vision that Israel would be the visible image of the invisible God so that when the Moabites and the Edomites and the Hittites and the Philistines and other nations looked at Israel, they would see the gracious ways of the true God writ large and beautiful in the character and national life of God's people. That was God's plan. Remember, God wants to put his glory on display. Okay? By the way, how did that work? You get little Glimpses of it, particularly under the Davidic reign and the beginning of Solomon's reign. Yeah, it's, it's, you keep, we're getting there. We're we're doing it, and then it crashes and burns, as we'll see in just a little bit. But that's God's that was that was that was God's intention. That was God's aim. We'll come back to that. Then in the conquest of Canaan, this is really interesting. What's Canaan? Go in and take them out. Level the cities. Kill. Everyone, man, woman, and child, destroy. I mean, this is, this is called the ban. This is, this is, you have to go back and look at the history and what's going on and the fact that God gave them 400 years to repent and they just put their face in front of God and, and this is judgment. This is a foreshadowing of eternal punishment you see later in the end of the story in the, in the book of the Revelation. But uh, it's a foretaste of judgment on sin, but there's something else going on. Who in Jericho, the first nation to fall, who do, we, who do we run into that helps the spies? Rahab. Rahab, the, she was a prostitute. And of course, what's so ironic, and you've already figured this out if you're going through Ruth, <laughs> she's in the line of David. She's, she's David's, I think, what, grandmother? Amazing. But what's really amazing is God's heart for the nations doesn't happen in Genesis or Matthew 28, 19, and 20. God's heart for the nations is already here. And when you're reading the Bible through with this in mind, and you're looking for it, you're amazed at how many times God's grace reaches out to the Gentiles all the way back in the book of, well, Joshua. In Judges, through 2 Samuel, of course, we, then this is the, pre, this is the um, prequel to, to uh, Ruth. is Ruth, such a beautiful story, but it takes place in a very dark time when, the nation is falling apart. In fact, it's very <laughs> it resembles a lot of what we see going on in the moral decline of the West here today. And uh, what does Israel need? What's the point of judges and all these stories? Where even the heroes are deeply flawed. <laughs> What's the point of that? What's the theme that runs through judges? There was no king. They need a king, and of course they get a king, but he's not the right king. And then they, they need God's king, and that's what you see unfolding in, in a little bit, foreshadowed in Ruth and then fulfilled in in Samuel, the books of Samuel. But then what happens? That we're back to David and Solomon, and it looks like it's going to go. And when you're reading the Psalms, you find Psalms where it's like. David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. That's Psalm, well, 72, probably about Solomon. And it looks like it's going to happen. And then all of a sudden crash and burn the exile eventually. Uh, so, um, and it looks like it's, it's not going to happen. But um, the point is, in spite of man's failure, God is all the way through this. He's at work even in the midst of the exile. And that's when you get into the prophets and and uh, the prophets, they're explaining why God had to prosecute Israel for their their repeated and, and, and rebellious violation of the covenant. And he finally does what he said he was going to do and he takes them into captivity. But all the way through the prophets. Have you ever read the prophets through? And they kind of just kind of go in cycles and they repeat and you're going. But it, it's, 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 it's a poetic way of of bringing together their failure, their certain judgment, but then there's always hope. That in in spite of this, that's not going to deter God from his determination to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So even there, you, you get glimpses of it, and, and I you've got some of these in your uh, notes here, like um, hopping down to, let's see. And I skipped over a lot of the stuff on... on uh, David and Solomon, you can look those up. but Habakkuk, 2:14. Is that in here? I think, yeah. For the Earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That, that's still on. Nothing's, nothing's uh, nullified that promise. It's still in play, in spite of the fact that God's in the process of judging his own people and, and really destroying Jerusalem, taking people uh, into captivity, but he's determined that he will, in the end, accomplish that which he has promised. And you see that in uh, Ezekiel 36 as well. Um, and uh, I love it in, uh, in 36, 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations of which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am. Am the Lord. And then he goes on in later verses, and how are we going to get there? We've tried this and it didn't work. We tried again and it didn't work. Well, then he begins to talk about it's going to happen through a new covenant. And he's going to give them new hearts. And of course, all of it points to the ultimate redemptive work of his true son, Jesus Christ, which comes to us in the New Testament. But all this is, we're marching through toward God's mission. And then uh, Daniel has some great. Blessings that are announced, two of them, through the mouths of pagan kings. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, in, um, in Daniel chapter 3, I don't know, do I have? Yes, in your notes. I, these are not quite in order. I forget why I did that, but Daniel 3.29. Who says, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way? Oh, that sounds like a man of God that said that. <laughs> no, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says that. Who says in Daniel 6... 26 and 27. For he, the God of Israel, is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers. He rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who's that coming from? Some great prophet from Israel? No, it's coming from the mouth of Darius, a pagan king. God's at work. God will not be stopped. His mission is moving forward. And of course, all of that is... Uh, if we had time to dig a little deeper, you're getting little inklings of what's going to be coming, and it's going to come through a person. His son is is, uh, going to be his true son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which we meet with in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is God's true and faithful son. And God blesses his son. There's that word again. He blesses. And where does he bless him? In the baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then he does it again at the end of his ministry. Same, almost word for word, same blessing at the the, uh, transfiguration. So I just want you to see how the scriptures are put together. And they're not just a bunch of verses that are randomly there and telling us a story. They're all tightly knit together and they're paving the way for the fulfillment of God's determination to fill the earth with his glory that's going to be accomplished by his true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, um, the t- first two books of Psalms introduce this beautifully. The first two uh, chapters of Psalms, the first two Psalms of the Psalter introduce this. What's the very first Psalm? Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who what? Doesn't walk in the council of God neither stand in the way of sin or sit, you know, sit sit in the seat of mockers. And it goes on to describe this man as a man who thrives in the midst of all that's going on in this difficult world. Why? Because he's rooted in the Word of God. He meditates on the Torah, the Word of God, the law of God, day and night. This man is completely unlike the first Adam who heard the Word and set it aside. This man is drenched with the Word and totally committed to the Word. And um, when you get to the end of Psalm 2, it talks about this man. Of course, he's the king. And that's the psalm where God installs his king as the answers to the world's problems. That's a whole other discussion that we need to be thinking about in these days. But the point is, Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Psalm 212, the end of that psalm, as it concludes and gives a warning to the, to the rebellious nations, you better listen to him and you better kiss him. That is, you better honor him and submit to him or else... And then it says, in essence, blessed are those who find refuge in him. And those, when, when, when you have the scripture do that, I'm sure, I know you talk about these brackets, sometimes they call them inclusios, that show you these things are linked together. And I, I put that in here because it, it just shows you um, that in Christ alone can we find the blessing that Adam lost and Jesus has won for us. So that's uh, all a part of this, but it's a blessing that's, that's not to um, be enjoyed. Us four, no more amen. <laughs> it's a blessing to be what? Like our glorious, generous God, it is, it is to be shared. I always think of the guys, the beggars who, uh, during the uh, famine in Samaria and uh, God made these beggars who are approaching the enemy camp thinking they, they'll either kill us or well, they'll give us food, but either way, we're going to die if we don't do something, and they go, and God makes their feet sound like what? A marching army, and when they get there, they're all gone, and there's this like gigantic feast, and what do they say? <laughs> we better go back and share this unless something bad happens to us. I, mean, I, I don't want to push that analogy too far, but the point is We've been greatly blessed, and what, sh- how shameful it would be for us not to share that blessing. So, how is this, um, how is this played out? Well, we know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. Uh, don't just jump into go on the world and make disciples. Go on the world and make disciples, teaching and bap- baptizing. And te- well, you know what I'm saying? I, out of order here. <clears throat> make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Don't start with 19, start with 18. All authority has been given to me. The Father has given Christ the authority to take back, to reclaim his inheritance. And we see that, uh, Matthew 28:18 is an echo of that other Psalm 2 I just mentioned. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. It's a great missions verse. And then, of course, where is this going to all end uh, Revelation 5.2, remember the, every, the, the gathering of all the elders and creatures around the throne <coughs> and uh, the loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? What, what, what's the scroll? What are the seals? What's going on here? Anybody have any idea? Want to take a guess here what this scroll is? How many of you, anybody here in, I don't know, real estate? Anybody know anything about it? Nah, nobody here knows anything about real estate, right? <laughs> this is like the title deed to the universe. Okay? You possess this, it's yours. And yet, it's sealed, and only one person has the authority to open the seals and reclaim. Do you get that picture here? And everybody's looking around like, nobody can do it, nobody can do it, and all of a sudden, the lamb steps forward, and he takes it. And all of heaven rejoices. And he does it by virtue of the blood that he's paid. He's paid it, and he's paid it in full. And um, that's the picture here. Revelation 5, 2, and then verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, I don't have time to break into this, but we tend to think of nations as just geographical boundaries. And there is something legitimate about that, but that's not the whole picture. Particularly when you look at the modern world today and you look at parts of the world in the Middle East and in Africa that were artificially divided up uh, after wars, and, and you end up with, like Yugoslavia, all these people who all hate each other. And then finally, when communism, when the Soviet Union breaks down and all these groups that hate each other and, and the... the, and the, the the dictator who says, shut up or I'll kill you, when he's gone, then they all turn against each other, and we have this big Balkan war. Are you getting that picture? I mean, so what I'm saying is the boundaries shift a lot in history. If you, just, if you could get world maps and go back hundreds of years, and you just see these boundaries constantly shifting. People groups are people groups, and uh, they're harder to find, they're harder to define, but they're there, And now we have an ability to actually define them with modern linguistics. And uh, so we're not just looking at national boundaries, which is where we tend to think. We're looking at peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, which includes... The emphasis there is more on ethno-linguistic than it is national boundaries. Keep that in mind. So the Great Commission. Um, How will this get done? How will this get done? Well... The church, we are now first John three two, we are the sons of God. Jesus is Christ is God's true son, and but we are in him. And as being in him we are his representatives, and it's to us that it's been given the Great Commission. Uh, just a quick word in um, Romans one five. I want to just how I want to show you how Paul deals with this in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans one five <clears throat> Paul talks about, um, he uses a phrase here that he, again, he uses this sort of bracket technique. And he talks about the obedience, to bring about the obedience of faith. He mentions it in Romans 1.5, and then he mentions it again near the very end of the book. And it's a key phrase that frames the whole letter. And Paul's goal is that Jesus Christ and God the Father will be glorified through his proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. Now, when you think of Romans, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? Do you think missions? Or do you think doctrine which is true it is it's a profoundly important do- just ask Luther and the reformers but it's more than a theological treatise in the gospel it is that but more how do we know that Paul says in Romans 1 I can't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to you wait a minute these are evangelized people what does he what does he does he think you could lose your salvation you got to come back and get them saved again no, he's, he's, he's wanting them to understand the gospel, not in, ten, in the sense of being coming into a relationship with God, but what it looks like for that gospel to transform you in that relationship with God. And um, they had some issues. They had some conflicts. They had some tensions. And I think the, the end game of Romans, where he's marching toward in arguing and explaining doctrine is how the gospel that he's explaining should affect the way they deal with their relational issues. So when you get to Romans 12, the doctrine, he moves from the doctrine to how are we going to apply this? And when you get to the heart of where he's going, it's in chapters, particularly in chapters uh, 14 and 15, where you've got these Jew-Gentile differences. And it's really about to break apart the church. The, Gent- the, the Jews got kicked out by, I think it was Claudius. So the Gentiles were the only ones left for a while until Claudius or whoever let the Jews come back to Rome. And they come back to the church, and they go to the fellowship hall, and there's bacon and ham in the refrigerator, and they're going nuts. Oi they they there goes the church. These Gentiles have destroyed us. They're breaking in all. You get my point? They have a practical problem. And that's what Paul's writing about he's writing about how do we deal with these um, laws that are near and dear to the Jews, the weaker brother. And you Gentiles understand you're really not bound by that, but how are you going to deal with your brothers in Christ? How are you going to be sensitive and loving toward them and not look down on them? Or how are you not going to judge your your Gentile brother for not going along with this, this long, dearly beloved tradition? It's a tradition now. It used to be a command. Now it's changed because it's all been fulfilled in Christ. And the point is this. When you read what Paul is saying is, yes, you, you, you need the gospel, but you, you need your life shaped by it. It needs to be a cross-shaped life, dying to your own desires for the glory of God and for the benefit of your fellow believers, particularly in the way you handle their differences. Now, all of this is important because here's the punchline of Romans, in my opinion, in terms of what Paul is wanting to see, Romans 15, 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Skip down to verse 24. I hope to see you as I, in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Paul's concern for the health of the Roman church was, was important for the sake of their reputation and mission in Rome, but it was also essential for launching him to the uttermost parts of the earth. There was a very practical reason. They need a unified church, or what's going to happen? It's going to stall God's plan to take the gospel to the nations. Does that make sense? He needed the Roman church to be a launching pad to take the gospel to Spain. So we've just looked at a few verses here, but let's go back and, again, what is the ultimate goal of missions? we, We glimpsed it a moment ago. Let's go back and look at Revelation 5. Two, in verses nine and ten, we won't. That's the the part where uh, the angels is proclaiming who's worthy to open the scrolls and break the seals, and it's and it's of course it's Jesus, and then they sing his worthiness. But notice, I want to come back. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then go, go on to Revelation 7, 9, and 10. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This is, this is, this is the end game of missions. The ultimate goal of missions is to take the gospel to every people group. Okay. Every people group. Now let's think about that. It's... We, Nobody disagrees about sending missionaries. Yes, missions is good. We need to be doing it. But are we thinking strategically? Is, Is our strategy in alignment with God's purpose to see his name proclaimed and every language around the throne represented crying out worthy is the Lamb. That is God's mission, to fill the earth with his glory. And the same God who shut down Babel because of its Rebellion against God, and he confounded the languages. Is <laughs> now using the languages to show there's only one person who can put it all back together again, and that's him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Humpty Dumpty may have fallen, and all the king's horses and men couldn't put him together again. But that metaphor—I don't know if it was in, what it was intended for—but that's that's only Jesus can put it back together again. Only He can put creation back together again. Now, where are we with that? Real quickly, uh, next slide. <laughs> we'll just wrap this up. I just want to give you a sense of where we are, and what we need to be thinking about. Okay, so this is these are statistics from an update uh, that was IMB did a few years ago. I'm, uh, uh, by the way, n- there's different groups that have different statistics, and they have different sometimes different metrics. But basically, they're they're getting at the same point here, and so I'm I'm. Um, Just letting you know that depending on how, you're going to see slightly different variations in in numbers depending on what metrics different groups like Joshua Organization and others are using. So, progress toward unreached people groups. There are 11,948 people groups, 7.9 billion people. No longer unreached. Uh, 4.6 billion are are reached. That is, they have access to the gospel. The gospel is available to them. We'll come back to that in just a second. That's 3.2 billion people. Unreached. 7,325 people groups are unreached. That is um, basically less than 2% of them are uh, professing Christians. That's that's the metric for that. 4.7 billion people. Then there's engaged but unreached. That is they're being engaged. There's is, is gospel strategies going on. There are people on the grounds. The gospel is being made available, but there's still less than 2% of that of the people groups in that are unreached. And then there's unengaged and unreached, 3.171 people. The latest statistic I heard is 3101, and that was from Global Serve, and they're one of the best on statistics on that. So over 3,000 people groups still unreached representing at, at the very, and these are people that have no access, they're unengaged. There's nothing going on in their neighborhood. There's no way that they would hear the gospel. They don't have it in their language. So let's, uh, let's take a quick closer look here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll be done. What's the progress? Um, here, here's the big picture. We just saw that. You can see the green would be areas that are <coughs> at least reached. And again, reached means 2% or more. So that, that doesn't mean America's reached. It means that America has access to the gospel. It doesn't mean we're all Christians by any stretch. And you can see parts of South America, <coughs> even parts of Africa, even a good chunk of uh, Asia. By the way, the one green part there in Asia, guess what country that is? China. China. The gospel took hold there, and the government has been trying to, particularly since communism came into being, is trying to destroy it, stomp it out. Guess what? It ain't working. I personally believe there are more believers in China than there are in the United States. And I can't prove that. Before, uh, As many as um, upwards of 100 million people who are, f- are Christ followers, people who are Profess Christ as their Savior. I don't think I could say that about America, but with any meaningful definition of what it means to be a Christian, God is on the move. <laughs> okay. Now let's let's go on to the next one. Let's break it down further. Here are the areas that are technically reached. That is, the gospel is accessible. Again, reach doesn't mean they're all saved. It means it's available. It means that if a person there's there's an opportunity for them to have access through literature, through radio, through other means, through <laughs> churches. Then, pardon? Okay, then unreached. Uh, this would be the people that, this would in, uh, th- these are people that would include both unreached, uh, but being engaged, and then unreached, but not being engaged. So that's 7,325 people in that corporate group there. Now let's break it down further. Let's take the yellow people, which would be the people that are engaged, but, but they're still not reached. 4.4 billion, you can see we're, where you can see where the work has got to be done there, but then you take the people who have no gospel access whatsoever. They're not only not being reached; they're not only unreached in the sense that gospel's going on, but they haven't embraced it. These are people where they can't get to it. It can't. It's not getting to them. And this is this is where missions has to really think about it. The low hanging fruit of missions has already been picked. There's a reason why these people aren't engaged. There are ideological barriers, there are political barriers, there are religious barriers, hostile governments. The, going to these countries means you don't say, I'm going to be a missionary, give me a visa. They're not going to give you a visa. You have to go there on a business visa. You have to have a job. And by the way, you don't go there to pretend to have a job so you can get in the country. No, you go there to add worth and to put on display what a biblical worldview job looks like. Because that becomes the platform by which people want to hear. And that is going on right now. I could tell you more about that some other time. But that's... So, all that to say, uh, this is where we are. And the work... I say this to say, for people that say, well, America's a mission field, What shouldn't we just be turning... It is. It's, it's just like Scotland and, and, and Great Britain and places where the Reformation were. Once red hot, they have become mission fields. But, they have the gospel. There are places that have no gospel. My I'm advocating that's where we need to be thinking more. And that's where we need to be praying and saying, Lord, what do you want us to do to be a part of changing that equation? Okay? Sorry I ran out of time, but I hope this was helped to you. Okay? All right. And I have some resources I, I'll give if you want to use them, but I didn't bring them.